Hi everyone, it's Hannah and Jesse here again from the conference committee for the British Society for Phenomenology's annual conference um, hosted by the University of Exeter, sponsored by Igenis and the Welcome Centre for Cultures and Environments of Health. Today we are joined by Professor Sophie Lloydall. Um, Hi, Sophie is a Professor of Philosophy and Chair of Practical Philosophy at the Technical University of Darmstadt. Sophie's research centres on issues in the field of phenomenology, political and legal philosophy, ethics, transcendental philosophy and philosophy of mind. Um, Sophie's also doing work on a number of different projects such as the ERC project, Who Are We?, Self-Identity, Social Cognition and Collective Intentionality and personal identity at the crossroads, phenomenological, genealogical and Hegelian perspectives at Charles University in Prague. Hi, Sophie. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Hannah. Hi. So, Sophie, first of all, how did you first get interested in phenomenology? Um, I mean, I guess when I started studying in Vienna back in 1998, phenomenology was quite established there so there was a group of people doing phenomenology there but actually the, um, the first seminar in my very first semester where I was confronted with phenomenology was actually um, a seminar on feminist readings of phenomenology so I had inscribed into you could inscribe several subjects and I had philosophy but also literature and then gender studies. So feminism was a very interesting or is a very interesting topic for me still. And, and these were texts, so it was a seminar by Sabine Gürtler who came from Hamburg, a guest professor. And we read some texts by Levinas and Meloponti, I think mainly. And I was really fascinated, you know, by those texts. And then I sort of was searching more for other seminars and that's how I got to know a whole group of colleagues and students and, and and what became very clear to me very quickly was that you know I had to go back to you know um, study read Husserl and well that's what was also what others were recommending to me and I realized well I have to read you know apart from what I'm reading in seminars and then very quickly I found myself in a reading circle on Husserl's idea of phenomenology and and that's it has stayed like that ever since. I mean, I'm still in reading circles and it has always also been a social forum for me. So I was very lucky at my university to have a lot of colleagues with whom I could sort of get into this um, adventure phenomenology together. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I think just let me add that because the, the university structure has changed so much ever since then. I mean, it's not that long ago, but now it's also structured in BA programs and MA programs and PhD programs. And what I benefited, benefited from very much was that as a second semester student, I got into a course where there were much more senior people who were partly also already writing their PhDs. And, and, you know, this mix of different people in one class was just a very fruitful thing, actually, because they said to us, no, no, you have to read, you know, outside of university, you have, you should do reading circles. And, you know, that's how sort of um, also practices got transmitted 
And, and I think, you know, these are the advantages of also mixing levels. And that is, that is not that common anymore, I think. No, I haven't ever um, heard of a, a, a reading circle to do with phenomenology in particular. And I think that'd be such a good thing to start as well, yeah. to have that yeah. big mix of people. That's, that's fantastic. It's definitely something that I benefited from just as an informal reading group, but I could imagine doing courses with a variety of students and also getting those pointers about kind of where to commit your time in terms of the reading outside of the curriculum. That's really valuable. And yeah, it's a shame that it's it's uh, faded out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But I back. Still, yeah, I still, I still have... This reading circle now. I mean, when I'm going back to Vienna, unfortunately, I'm not that often there. But just yesterday, I met with these people. We are now, of course, all you know, not students anymore. But there are still uh, there are still young people coming, in and we have so so. And it's a group of five to eight people meeting in a cafe, reading a text together, and you know, reading it live, discussing it, and then going for drinks together that also um helps the discussion I'd oh. say and uh yeah no but I think I mean that's really how philosophy phenomenology philosophy in general is is something that is alive and is a practice and is uh, something you do together with other people so it's philosophizing together and I think that that is what made it so fascinating for me from the very beginning that sounds wonderful um Speaking of kind of the non-philosophical elements that come to play and when, when we kind of approach or, or get ready to do philosophy, Hannah and I were wondering if there's any, any hobbies or, or um, practices or activities that, that come to bear on your work, maybe in the background or kind of behind the scenes that maybe help you think about phenomenology or, or get in the right headspace for doing academic work. Mm. Well, I thought about that question and I, I'd say it's rather not a hobby, but it's life I guess I mean just uh, if, if you if you start with the habit of reflecting and thinking about something then you can basically <laughs> apply it to anything but if I I mean I think there are there are three main three main issues the, the first is traveling I mean traveling is just totally mind-opening and, and it can be the village you know uh, 15 kilometers away from where you grew up and, and and if you talk to people there they might see things very differently but it can of course also be Japan for example but but I think traveling is if, if one has the privilege and the means to travel um, it's just a, a mind-opener it's fantastic this is why and at the moment I'm I'm also I'm also um, living a, a very European practicing European life, I'd say, because I commute between Vienna, Brussels and, and, and Darmstadt. So I, I'm a lot in the train in, 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 in Europe. And that's also sort of, you know, like be, being on your way and then hearing different languages and talking to people, that is a mind opener. And then um, I think the other thing is that, um, yeah, people, I mean, people make you think. I don't have to say much about that, I guess. And the third is that I, um, I, I'd say, well, film literature. I, I, I come from a, I come from a theatre family, so I, you know, it was I was lucky to always be confronted with that, have discussions on the table about film literature, whatever, art, and um, I, I, I was just thinking of one example. I don't want 
it to sound too much, you know, high culture like. Because I think what makes us think a lot also is our normal engagement with the everyday pop culture series we're watching, Netflix, whatever, in a critical way. It doesn't always have to be the art house channel. Of course, <laughs> that's a good thing. But um, uh, for example, I did a seminar two years ago on, on, on Black Mirror. I'm quite sure you know, you know that. And yep. um, uh, anthology, I think it's called. And that was just really great because, you know, it, it mixes uh, reflections on society and, and uh, technology and dystopic political or societal um, situations that could happen in future scenarios. And I was mixing that with the philosophical texts and then we were watching one episode and we had fantastic discussions. I mean, of course, that and, and, and that really, you know, I mean, that that can make you think a lot and also I mean, you don't have to appreciate every episode but um i think that's a yeah that that's something that's something that uh, that can make us reflect not that i necessarily have to make an academic article out of everything <laughs> <laughs> but just um yeah just to get into a good philosophical conversation with others my students yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for remembering as academics that there are other ways of making sense of our experiences in other ways of telling stories and actually engaging with those is really enriching and, and also important for us as people, not just as, you know, practitioners and academics and things. I suppose um, along those lines, um, the theme of the conference this year is engaged phenomenology. And Hannah and I were wondering what that means to you. Um, whether there are any particular examples in the literature at the moment that have caught your attention as interesting ways of doing what we might call engaged phenomenology and, and yeah, what, what that means to you. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's the first time that I've come across this um, sort of um, newly coined term, but I, I, I'd say that engaged phenomenology is just a way of doing phenomenology that cares about the world we live in. And then you can systematize it or, or specialize in a more, if you are more interested in environmental issues, political issues. But uh, I think that the main thing is that you, you, you care about what is going on and that you're not naive vis-a-vis -vis power structures, that, that inequality and alienation and discrimination, and that that theory has a relation to that and, and that it's not detached from the world we live in. I think many of these theses can or can be already reflected within the way that phenomenology is done since we are just beings in the world and and there the meaning constitution has a history but on the other hand of course there is not so there's not the biggest tradition like in critical theory or Foucauldian theory where you'd say from the very beginnings phenomenology is is um, sort of aware of power structures it, it it might reflect so so I think that engaged phenomenology um, sort of brings in that um, in a in a more so in, in a stronger way that might have been done before on the other hand I mean we shouldn't forget that there have been the whole generations before I mean, think of the existentialists, the French existentialists, think of Hannah Arendt, who I've worked a lot on, and, and that for me is also like one of the examples of how you can use 
phenomenological means and, and, and ways of thinking to, to analyze political uh, um, problems. And as of, um, well, I, I mean, I, I, could name, I could name several people for, uh, who, who are working um, on these things today, but I think I want to single out the work of uh, Aiteng Gündoktu, who I find very impressive. Uh, she, as, as a person, as a philosopher, as an engaged uh, philosopher, um, she is a, actually a political scientist and she works uh, with Hannah Arendt and, and she also says she's very interested in phenomenology and with Merleau-Ponty. And I, especially from, you know, coming from philosophy, I find it fascinating how she works with also empirical stuff concerning migration. And at the moment, I think she's working on border deaths in the U.S., um, and she does that with very fine-grained descriptions, but in a very engaged way. So I find that if I, if I had just to name one person, there would be many, but I would single that out. And let me just mention one thing, because that um, is, of course, not that well-known in the English-speaking world. Um, I think that in, in Germany, um, maybe also a little bit in Austria, but mainly in Germany, with the work of Bernhard Waldenfels, who is unfortunately very, yeah, not, 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 not really very well translated and not, not many works are translated. So he has been somebody who has been pushing this sort of political thinking um, already in the 80s, basically, and already, and he has a lot of uh, also people who have worked with him. I could name a few now, but just to, you know, just to, to bring that to mind that there is maybe also a whole bunch of literature in, in German where, where um, topics like violence or how do we relate to history or alterity or identity politics are already treated very much earlier in the 90s, for example. And I just want to take the opportunity to, to just point to that and say, yeah, well, that exists as well, because we miss so much by not speaking many languages very often that, yeah. Absolutely. That's a really good um, couple of recommendations. I think it's pretty interesting as well. You know, I think the uh, part of the the angle of the conference is maybe suggesting that phenomenologists could learn a lot by listening to practitioners and heeding clues from the life world, perhaps. But there's a really important point to be made there about kind of people who are working in more empirical subjects who might uh, benefit from incorporating phenomenology into their work, too. So that's that's a really interesting contrast to some of the other ways people have been talking about engaged phenomenology as something that's maybe slightly distinct to critical phenomenology, but also has that kind of flavor to it. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Yes, I wish I could speak German. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's also that, you know, that, I mean, it's no secret that there's a hegemony of, of American culture also in academic life. And um, that with that uh, comes a hegemony of the English language. And I'm happy it's not Chinese because that would be much more difficult for me to learn. <laughs> so, uh, so, 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 I, and, and I'm, in principle, I'm fine with that. And I think we should manage to work in several languages. Unfortunately, you know, it ends with my English as well. I can read French texts and sort of understand a bit in other Romantic languages. That's it. And, uh, but, but, you know, I mean, this sort of practice that we could, 
you know, get an, get an exchange in, in a multilingual way with sometimes this is practice that you have consecutive translations and things like that. But it is a fact that it makes uh, um, communication not easier, but harder, but also more interesting. And that concerning the literature, I mean, you know, we just um, tend to look more and more only at these main mainstream things that appear where things are counted and then, you know, you have a citation index and whatever. And that's how a lot of literature just doesn't even appear anymore on, on, on the boards. And that, and that uh, will be an increasing problem, I think. So, yeah, that was just to put it on our minds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was just going to ask, because it's a really interesting thing that you've just said about the that there's a lot of work going on that's that that people can't access for whatever reason um be it publishing or language um or particular privileges that other people aren't accessible to so do you think I know that you said that you wanted to mention it to to bring it to light but do you think that's where potentially phenomenology will will go in the future it'll push itself to those boundaries and and have a look at you know look again at those those real world lived experiences that that you that you mentioned before um really what my question is where is it that you see phenomenology pushing the field in the future this is kind of a hard question i think um um not not only because uh, it's very hard to foretell the future, but um, it, it could be, you know, th there are so many sorts of fashions nowadays in phenomenology that um, I'm, I'm not sure if I, I really even wanted to say something about that because um, it's kind of, uh, we always have to be, super active we always have to have new topics and be on the front of the field and do this and that so there has a certain discourse has evolved that um academics of any kind you know humanities or social sciences are always presenting themselves as innovative and on the forefront of this and that and now we're going into this field so it, that makes me sometimes want to advocate for a good old armchair reflection <laughs> philosophy um, that that um, that focuses again and again on the same questions and problems like who are we, what is our relation to others, what is the world we live in, and and you know I think that these questions have it's not by chance that philosophy has such a long tradition and texts that are in fact two thousand years old do make, can make sense for us. And so, so I think instead of always, you know, being so fixated on what is our new invention in the future, I think as philosophers or phenomenologists, we should take the time and say, wait a minute, let's, you know, let's, let's uh, get de, not, not acceleration all the time, but just a de-acceleration, do you say that? Slowing <laughs> down. Um, <laughs> down. <laughs> it's yeah. um, and, and, and that's why I also would not like to create a dichotomy between 
engaged philosophy of phenomenology and say theoretical or armchair phenomenology or philosophy like it is sometimes done you know I mean we are the engaged ones and the other ones are not thinking about that and I think that 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 um that should, rather we should not do that because I think that this privilege of being able to slow down and to reflect on something and then especially in a phenomenological way to really start dissecting um, a, a phenomenon and to you know start really think about what could be a description for that that in itself I would say is in a world that is so you know, accelerated today, this practice in itself is, is, is a sort of resistant practice. And if that can be brought into other professions, maybe, uh, the, you were mentioning, I mean, uh, from healthcare to, uh, I don't know, I mean, uh, nurses are interested in phenomenology, um, artists are interested in phenomenology, phenomenology has always been, I mean, lawyers are interested in phenomenology. If that sort of practice of uh, taking your time and looking at a phenomenon as it appears and, and then trying to describe it and not quickly um, sort of put a theory over it. If, if that um, attitude can enter um, some other disciplines, I'd be happy about that. And apart from that, I simply don't know what the next fa fashion in philosophy <laughs> and phenomenology will be. But I think it, it is on the way of becoming a bit more political. I think that indeed uh, is something that is that is happening. And one more critical remark, I mean, um, uh, or critical, just a remark. I mean, uh, phenomenology has always been um, interdisciplinary. So I've been working on this uh, phenomenology and law intersection, and it's fascinating that ever since the beginnings of uh, phenomenology, there has been sort of interest uh, from both sides to, to um, yeah, questions um, what is legal theory? How could we do that phenologically, whatever? That is one thing, or psychiatry, or you name it. I mean, there, there have always been from the very beginning interdisciplinary relations. On the other hand, phenomenology in the last 20 years hasn't had a very easy time at uh, philosophy departments. So um, phenomenologists, and this is maybe a good thing, were, were more and more urged to sort of go outside and make contact also with other disciplines and, and other life-worldly contexts, because even if they wanted to stay in the ivory tower, they were literally not having <laughs> an easy time doing that. Um, so, so I think, I mean, we might see this uh, as an advantage and uh, we might work with that. Um, and who knows what comes next. <laughs> I think that's a really refreshing reminder, actually, of the kind of cultural context in which that we're all practicing phenomenology and, and that this, this process of dressing phenomenology up and proposing new directions is actually um, perhaps in some ways at odds with the necessity of slowing down to to do the phenomenology itself and i think that's really that's a really helpful reminder to uh intervene in the way that we're talking about this conference as well so thank you for that sophie i wish we all weren't so much under the pressure all the time to sell ourselves you know yeah. i mean this is just uh and 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 i think you know every every single 
um, part of our lives, be it private or professional, has been so much um, yeah, in that frame that we always have to say, what is new? How can we sell it? How can we gain attra attention, attract attention? How many people are reading my posts? And so, so and, and I, I'm actually rather pessimistic that philosophy would be the only sort of branch that, that could not uh, get into this general um, yeah, um, zeitgeist, I would say. But <laughs> on the other hand, I'd say we have an obligation to, to resist that a little bit, at least. I think we just have one more question for you, Sophie. Um, we were wondering if there is a particular artistic work that inspires you or gives you cause for reflection when it comes to the dynamics of listening or empathy or engagement more broadly. Um, it could be a song or a, or, or a painting or something like that. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. What an intriguing question. Um, if well, concerning music, um, I'm not sure if that is still that well-known, but do you know the song by Patti Smith, Citizenship? That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have so much to do with terminology, I guess, but I, I think it's a fantastic song that is still, it's from, isn't it from the 70s, maybe? But uh, it reflects all those... Um, problems and challenges of immigration. Do I have a name uh, and the ship of citizenship? So I, when, when having read Hannah Arendt and refugees and so on and stateless persons, I, I often like to listen to that song because I mean, then Petty Smith is just fantastic. Um, you also have this powerful and poetic way of, um, of um, I mean, she's really screaming in the end uh, about is this uh, my name? Uh, um, so I found that, as for a song, quite uh, quite impressive. And I think of one. There is one movie, um, and and it's. Uh, I haven't even watched it until the end, because it it was impossible for me to do so. So and and I found it incredibly strong, although nothing happens. And this for me is an example of, you know, how a very detailed description that is so detailed that it brings out all the alienation of an everyday life uh, can be sort of uh, put into film. And the film I mean is uh, Jean Dielman by Chantal Ackermann, the Belgian uh, director. And it's a very, so I think the movie goes on nearly four hours, something like that. And um, it's about a, you know, a woman who seems to be a normal woman in the 60s in Brussels, who is just not very rich, not very poor, but sort of uh, living, living in an apartment that is dark. And you, you follow her through the whole day. I mean, how she's peeling potatoes and how she's closing doors, opening doors, opening the water, closing the water. And it makes you crazy <laughs> because you sort of more and more you realize that this is a desperate life and that as a woman, she's sort of, she seems to be a widow. She doesn't have a job anymore and to get some money. She has to prostitute herself. So, and then, and then uh, these people come and then she's putting a towel somewhere, you know, I mean, it's just really, there's not, there's nearly no talking in the movie. 
And it's a very meticulous description. And it's, you know, the camera is always quite some distance. But you recognize yourself also in these daily routines. And, and, that, and, and that can be, you know, and that I thought is really a power of um, sort of drawing you into something that, you know, every, everybody brushes teeth or closes doors and turns on lights. Um, and how, how, this, but how, how this comes to be a whole existence that you have to bear in a way. And, and also the societal and political implications of it. In the end, I'm, it is said that she kills one of those um, uh, uh, lovers that come to her, but um, I couldn't watch it through the end. So I have, to, <laughs> I have to do it all over again, I guess. But this uh, made me think it was very impressive, um, very, very fantastic. Um, what makes you turn it off? I was running out of the cinema. It, I was watching it in the cinema and uh, at some point I just thought I'd either start screaming or crying. I just, I was so emotionally excited. <laughs> it, it, it was literally unbearable. I had to go. So, <laughs> so yeah, I was just leaving the cinema basically. Um, yeah, but I couldn't, couldn't pull through with it. So next time I'll have to start all over again. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> to get to the catharsis in the end, you know, when everything explodes, and that, yeah, yeah. I could. Those are two very powerful examples. Thanks <laughs> very much for those yeah. recommendations, or or at least signpostings. You know, very yeah. intriguing. Maybe we'll um, put links in the description of this video or something, so people can take a look for themselves. Chantal, they can bear it. it. Yeah, she's just a she's just a really uh, great director. Thank you very much, Sophie, for joining us um, for this discussion and chat. And um, we're really looking forward to your keynote uh, later in the conference. And um, I guess we'll leave it there. Well, thanks very much, uh, Jesse and Hannah. And um, I'd be so happy to be in Exeter, but uh, it's like this online right now. And it was great having this conversation. And next time, hopefully live. Okay. Yes, fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you, Sophie.